0: The numbers are out, and they don't look good. Support for Israel among American evangelicals is plummeting. This is particularly true for young people. But why? What's behind the downward drift? Can anything be done to reverse this dangerous trend? Coming up, we'll bring you the disturbing facts, ask some difficult questions, and then explore some hopeful solutions so it's not all negative. Join us now for The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. It's the one-hour flyover of the Middle East with our pilot, Dr. Charlie Dyer, a noted Middle East authority sitting in the co-pilot seat. I'm John Gager. And Charlie, I understand that the beverage and snack service on today's flight is self-serve.
1: It is definitely self-serve, but uh, the flight is definitely going to be interesting as well.
0: That's for sure. Starting with our look at current events, stories that are unfolding in the Middle East the last week, Israel is now two weeks into its new year, year number 5782 on the Hebrew calendar, and their government released its latest population statistics. What do they tell us at the start of this new year?
1: Yeah, some fascinating numbers. Over 15 million people worldwide identify themselves as Jewish. Now, of that number, 6.9 million live in Israel, 8.3 million live elsewhere, which means 45.3% of the world's Jewish population now live in Israel. And that's an increase of half a percent over last year. Now, that increase was due in part to over 20,000 new immigrants who moved to Israel in spite of the pandemic. Uh, The largest concentration of Jews outside Israel, no surprise here, it's the United States with 6 million, followed by France with just under half a million. But back to Israel. The total population there, including Jews and non Jews, is 9.4 million. Now that's an increase of 1.6% over last year. Of that number, 74% are Jewish, 21% are Arab, and the other 5% are a mixture, including Russian-speaking immigrants who aren't Jewish but who were married to someone who was Jewish. Israel's Central Bureau of Statistics projects that Israel's population will pass the 10 million mark by 2024. That's not too far away. One other piece of the demographic puzzle people need to know is the total Palestinian population in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Those numbers aren't included in Israel's census, and they're more difficult to compile. But the most reliable estimate is that there are just under 4.5 million Palestinians actually living in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Now, combined together, that's 14 million people, Israelis and Palestinians, living in an area roughly the size of New Jersey, Hmm. which itself only has a population of 9 million. And much of the land in Israel is rugged, uninhabitable desert. Uh, So those 14 million are crowded together in a much smaller space. Now, this demographic squeeze, along with the obvious religious tensions, well, that's what combines to add to the current conflict. Uh, The numbers do tell us one thing, John. Israel is the homeland and the home of the Jewish people, and
0: they're not going anywhere. Well, as we look at this new year, uh, it's interesting to take a glance at the current Israeli government, which, at least on paper, looks like a multi-headed monster with eight parties and at least five major leaders. And yet this rather awkward government, Charlie, seems to be holding together. Now, are there any issues on the horizon that would challenge its apparent cohesion? The only
1: solid, cohesive force holding that coalition together happens to be their dislike of former Prime Minister Netanyahu. Most of the coalition's leaders served at some point in the past in a Netanyahu-led government And they would say they still have the scars to prove it. Now, on paper, the coalition has virtually nothing in common. It's composed of very conservative and extremely liberal parties. Uh, They both support and oppose the establishment of a Palestinian state. Some are for expanding Jewish settlements in the West Bank, while others want to freeze all settlement activity. Now, at some point, those fundamental differences will have to surface. And when they do, it will be difficult for the coalition to hold together. So in that sense, they're working on short-term victories and hoping to stay in power for as long as realistically possible. The first major hurdle facing the coalition was the need to pass a state budget. And for the first time since 2018, the Knesset gave preliminary approval to the 2021 and 2022 budgets. The budget involves four separate bills and they all passed in their first reading in the Knesset. They now have to head to the finance committee and then they need to pass their second and third readings in the Knesset before they actually become law. And the deadline for all of that is November 4. But right now it seems likely to pass and that would give the new government some breathing space. But Those other issues are just over the horizon, and they're almost certain to create problems. And I'm thinking especially of settlements and the peace talks with the Palestinians. Both the U.S. and Europe are expected to pressure Israel on both of those, and they could expose the major divisions within the government. So once the budget passes, watch to see how the coalition handles those other two issues. It's really not a question of if the government's going to fall, but when. You know, very few coalitions in Israel ever make it through their entire time in office. So unless the current coalition can work out some sort of compromise, it might have a shorter life expectancy than most.
0: You're listening to The Land and The Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger. It's a look at current events, stories unfolding in the Middle East that we're examining right now. After more than a year of turmoil, the country of Lebanon now has a coalition government as well. How stable though does this new government appear to be and will it actually be capable of making the hard decisions needed to put the country back on track economically?
1: Well, you know, we always say hope springs eternal, but sadly in this case I'm not too hopeful. Uh, the new prime minister is Najib Makati. He's a billionaire considered to be one of the richest men in Lebanon, and he's served as prime minister twice before, uh, back in 2005 and then from 2011 to 2013. He's widely considered to be part of the same political group that brought the country to bankruptcy. Hmm. And he was only selected as a last-minute compromise following pressure on Lebanon from the U.S. and France. You know, it was time to form a cabinet, uh, having gone a year without one. Uh, Makati's vowed to cooperate with any country, except for Israel, he says, to bring Lebanon back from the edge of total insolvency. But the task facing this new government is enormous. Their foreign reserves are, are dangerously low, making it virtually impossible for them to support the $6 billion in annual subsidies that they dole out for food and fuel. Uh, They also need to conduct a financial audit of the central bank, which could raise some uncomfortable questions. They hope to receive a rescue package from the International Monetary Fund, but Any aid from the IMF will be conditioned on fundamental changes to the country's economic system, including implementing widespread reforms to eliminate corruption and mismanagement. So the real question is, can Makati force the different factions to relinquish control to bring about the larger economic good for the country as a whole? And sadly, there's nothing in Lebanon's recent history that suggests he'll be
0: successful. Well, here's an interesting story. Archaeologists in Jerusalem recently uncovered a 2,000-year-old quarry that apparently supplied stone for Israel's temple. I'm curious, how do they know all of this stuff? And how was that quarry discovered in the first place? And what have we been able to learn from this find so far, Charlie? Yeah, this really is
1: fascinating. You think, what are you going to find when you, when you excavate a hole in the ground? But like so many discoveries in Israel, this quarry was uncovered during a building project. And once it became apparent that the area had served as a stone quarry, work was halted and they did a salvage excavation. Now, at first you think, okay, so what are you going to uncover? Uh, You're finding bedrock. But what they found were massive building blocks in various stages of being quarried out. Hmm. Some of the blocks were between five and six and a half feet in size. Now, apart from the actual blocks the archaeologists also were able to see how the blocks were cut out of the bedrock and prepared for transport. Now, by discovering them still in place, they believe they'll be able to recreate the process by which the ancient stones were actually quarried. Uh, The area around this quarry, uh, it's known as Har Hatzvim, which means in Hebrew, hill of the quarrymen. And the name likely goes back 2,000 years and was given to the site, because it was being used as a quarry for the temple. Uh, The area is about two miles though from where the temple stood. In other words, these large stones were quarried and then transported really over a fairly large distance. Uh, The discovery is another piece of the archaeological puzzle that helps us reconstruct what it was like in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and Yeah, John, I really find
0: that fascinating. I do too. And that's a look at current events here on The Land and the Book. Our program has four segments, and we're wrapping up the first of those four with our current events look. Then we're going to talk about the evangelical erosion. Every week we bring you a fascinating guest and insights. Charlie, what happens in segments three and four? Well, number
1: three, we answer listeners' questions. If you have a question on the Bible or something in the Middle East, uh, you write in and we will answer that question, uh, which I, I love that. The yeah. teacher in me loves questions. And then the final segment, uh, we go to someplace in Israel. In fact, uh, we've been doing a three-part series. Today's the last of those three parts. Uh, we're looking at the longest celebration on record of the fall festivals in Israel's history from the book of Nehemiah.
0: We've got a website, of course, to support all this. It's thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Our podcast is there. Love for you to explore that for yourself and share us with a friend at thelandandthebook.org. Well, coming up, it's the evangelical erosion. The numbers are out. They don't look good. Support for Israel among American evangelicals is plummeting. What can we do about it? You'll find out next on The Land and the Book. Last spring, Barna Research polled more than 700 evangelical Christians between the ages of 18 and 29. Respondents were asked where they placed their support in the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. Just 34% said with Israel, 24% said with the Palestinians, and 42% said with neither side. Just three years ago, 69% of young evangelicals that same age group said they sided with Israel, 6% 6% said they sided with the Palestinians, and 26% said they didn't take either side. Well, that's a drop in support of more than 50%. That's frightening. But what's behind it all? This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. And before we get into the evangelical erosion, let's think creative strategies for loving our Jewish coworkers and friends. So you want to share your faith with your Jewish friend, and maybe you never thought of using the Old Testament King David as a bridge. How do we do it? Dr. Michael Rydelnik, professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute, answers that question.
2: You know, people often will say to me, David was just only writing about his own experience in the Psalms. He couldn't possibly have been a prophet. But if you look at his last words, which is sort of like his last interview, if you can think of it, what were you writing about, David? It says that this is the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man raised up and the variant readings. Now I I recognize that it's a variant reading in the history of the text, but it says the man raised concerning the Messiah of the God of Jacob. He says, who am I writing about? The Messiah of the God of Jacob, Hmm. the delightful one of the songs of Israel. That's a literal rendering of that. And how do you know that, David? Well, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. And then he talks about this righteous king that's going to come. And certainly it's not me, he says in verse 5, but I know he's coming because God made a covenant with me in Second Samuel 7, and he will fulfill it, every word of it. And so it's a great passage to see that David is saying, I've written about the Messiah under inspiration, go read it in the Psalms.
0: Great advice. Great perspective. The last words of King David. Thank you. Michael Rydelnick, professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute, joining us in studio here on The Land and the Book. Dr. Jim Showers is the executive director of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, a worldwide Christian organization headquartered in New Jersey. The ministry was actually founded in 1938 by Christians determined to help Europe's beleaguered Jewish population. Well, today, Jim speaks at conferences, churches, and schools nationwide, is a frequent participant in events supporting Israel, and is a strong advocate of the country's growing Jewish-Christian alliance. He helps lead joint Jewish-Christian trips to Israel, and Jim and his wife, Diane, live in southern New Jersey. They've got two married children, several grandchildren. Welcome to the land of the book, Jim.
3: Well, thank you, John. It's good to be with you today.
0: Well, those statistics I shared up front are difficult to process. A 50% drop in support for Israel among young evangelicals in just three years. How can we explain these numbers?
3: Well, I don't think it can be understood totally by one simple reason. It has a lot to do with who they are, their identity. They're fiercely independent they don't like to be affiliated with any label. They don't want to be called conservative or liberal. They don't want to be called Republican or Democrat. They don't want to be called anything that their parents were called or grandparents were called. They, they like to operate with an independent mind, making judgments as they go. And when you combine that with their strong affinity for social justice— it makes it easy for them to buy into the you know, mainstream media's narrative that the Palestinians are merely victims of what's going on in the Middle East and that Israel's the big bully who beats up on these poor little Palestinians. Now, that's part of the equation, I believe. But I think the other part of it, and probably perhaps the bigger part, is a failure within the church to teach about Israel. You know, when we see conflicts like what what occurred in May between Israel and the Palestinians, younger evangelicals who have not really been taught what the Bible teaches about Israel and God's future plans for Israel tend not to see what's going on in terms of what the Bible teaches about the greater conflict between God and Satan. They try to see it through human reasoning Mm -hmm. rather than divine reasoning. So instead of seeing it with God's worldview, they see it with man's worldview.
0: Well, beyond the numbers themselves, which are shocking enough, how do we account for the unbelievable speed of this change? That's what gets me. What's so different about the past three years?
3: Well, I would say we've seen a lot, a huge amount of change socially and politically here in this country, and I think it's having an impact on young evangelicals. We're seeing how there's just a huge change in thinking of the past and what the priorities are. Yeah. And, you know, part of it, too, which, which comes back to what we're doing through the church, Reformed theology has become so prominent in the church today. It is very popular. And one of the shortcomings to me of Reformed theology is it doesn't really have an expressed eschatology. In other words, it doesn't take a position on future events. And so, therefore, there's little reason to teach about the importance of Israel today or in the future. Hmm. Now, you combine lack of a solid biblical footing for Israel combined with where the society and culture is going socially and politically, and I think that explains a lot of it. Yeah.
0: The evangelical erosion of support for Israel. That's our focus today on the land and the book. Our guest is Dr. Jim Showers, executive director of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, and I'm John Gager. You know, it seems to me that this uh, major shift change is somehow the byproduct of a generation that has not been taught the facts of history even. Perhaps the Holocaust has been exaggerated. Perhaps other people groups were equally as victimized. Your thoughts?
3: Well, I, I think there's a lot of truth there. If you go back and look at evangelical support for Israel historically, it's not just a recent phenomenon. I mean, it's part of the cultural fabric of our country and the founding of our country, My concern for today, John, is as we see a decline in support for Israel out of young evangelical Christians, while they don't make up a majority of evangelical Christianity today, over time they will become the majority. And as support for Israel declines in the evangelical church, who in America is going to stand up to support the Jewish people? Who in America is going to stand against anti-Semitism, which we see growing every day here in this country and around the world? That's my concern.
0: Yeah. Dr. Jim Showers is the Executive Director of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Jim speaks at conferences and churches, schools nationwide is a frequent participant in events supporting Israel. And as you're listening, you can pick up on the fact he's a strong advocate of the country's growing Jewish-Christian alliance. We have a mainstream media that's not helping us at all, increasingly reluctant, if not refusing outright, to connect the words terrorist and Islam, even when the terrorists themselves make that connection. And that has to be shaping the narrative that uh, younger evangelicals appear to be buying into. My question is, why do the Palestinians... Uh, Seem to consistently win the public relations war when it comes to this whole discussion.
3: Well, John, I I think we understand that best when we look at it through the lens of the conflict between God and Satan. To me, the media is simply following the anti God thinking. In in other words, we understand Israel is uh, constantly in the crosshairs of Satan because Israel is the nation through whom God works his plan of redemption. So the media doesn't like Israel because man doesn't like God, and Israel represents God to uh, man here on earth. I don't know that it's a conscious thought, but it's the way it works out, that the media doesn't favor Israel. And so they present one side of the story. And for Christians, you know, the Bible talks about how it's part of our responsibility is to be sharp, to understand what's going on in the world. And to know and understand the times that we're living in. I think the thing we need to always be careful of when we read in the public media, the, the mainstream media, is that they do have a bent. They, they do have a predisposition against Israel, and it comes out of the heart. And so we just need to filter it through that. And realize that they're only giving us one side of the story. And I think that's the point that young evangelicals miss. They, they're open to anything and everything. But listen, that's an opportunity for us, John. We need to be better at reaching the younger generation and getting them into a discussion of the Word of God, because they are open to everything, and we need to bring before them what saith the Lord about the Jewish people and why they are so critically important hmm. to not what God has done just in the past or what He is doing today, but what He is yet to do.
0: A drop in support of more than 50% among younger evangelicals. That's what we're talking about today. Let me ask you, Dr. Showers, what's the worst that can happen? if these trends don't turn around?
3: Well, this land will come to know a church that no longer values Israel and stands with Israel. If that comes to be a reality and the evangelical church no longer stands in support of Israel, Israel will be alone, virtually alone. As we see anti-Semitism on the rise in college campuses and major cities, we've seen attacks against synagogues and Jewish people even being accosted and attacked on the street, in subways, here in America. Who's going to stand against that? Mm. Who is going to stand with the Jewish people? Today, the number one support group for the Jewish people is evangelical Christians, but we can't presume that's always going to be the case. It is why I think our job before us is a huge one, but one we can undertake. Here at the Friends of Israel, we're looking at ways to create opportunities to engage the younger generation. We're creating internship opportunities. We have a volunteer program that takes young adults over to Israel to volunteer and help with the basic needs over there. We work in a hospital in uh, Israel. and. We think that's an important way. We're, we're looking at ways to expand our digital teaching and communication to the younger generation to engage them in serious discussion about these issues and why they're important. We're not ready to give up. We think there's the younger generation is a great generation, and we simply need to do a better job of teaching them what the Word of God says. You know, when people sometimes say to me, what's wrong with this younger generation? I say, well, look in the mirror. Who made them? Hmm. We made them. Yeah. So we have the responsibility to fix it or to correct it or to help educate them so that they understand what we understand, which are the basic principles of God's Word.
0: You know, we uh, are so blessed at the land and the book to have an audience that is incredibly responsive. Uh, You're talking, Jim, to people who care and care deeply and are ready to step up and do something, but they're wondering, what is that something? Folks say, I'm just little old me. What can one person do that could possibly make even a slight impact on this discussion that we're having? How would you respond?
3: Well, you know, we always start with prayer. You know, the one thing we're told in the Old Testament to pray for is the peace of Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, the Great Awakenings began with uh, a season of prayer and some really great prayer warriors who who stirred the heart of God, and it blessed this country. I I think prayer is the the starting point for turning this around, but I think also challenging the church in what we are or aren't teaching about Israel. Um, We need to get back to focusing on the full counsel of God. You know, in Reformed theology, it's more focused on certain aspects of the Word of God, but leaves out other aspects like eschatology. That's a dangerous path to go down, and uh, that needs to be addressed. But for the average person, support ministries like the Friends of Israel is one way, and support for Israel. But listen, so many of your listeners have input into the lives of children and grandchildren who are in this age demographic. Have conversations with them. Talk to them about why Israel is important. Share why it's important to you. We know evangelical Christianity supports Israel very strongly for several reasons. Uh, You know, the Jewish people are the one nation God raised up to do his redemptive work. The Jewish people gave us the word of God. Without them, we would have no word of God. The Jewish people gave us our Messiah and Savior. And so on top of that, God's future completion of his plan of redemption goes right through Israel. There is all that, plus the fact that in genesis twelve three God told Abraham through a promise he made that his desire was for Gentiles to bless the Jewish people, not to curse them. And you know in matthew twenty five Jesus is going to come back someday and judge the nations for the way they have treated the Jewish people, and those are physical blessings. you know that's the passage that talks about when I was hungry you fed me. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick, you came to me. Mm -hmm. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. Getting younger people involved in doing those kind of efforts and having conversations with them, I think is one of the ways we can turn this around.
0: That's a great way to land the conversation, and we've really appreciated your insights. Dr. Jim Showers, executive director of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Thanks for your time. Love to have you back again sometime.
3: Thank you, John. I'd love to do that.
0: All right. You have a great day, sir.
3: Thank you. You too. And Charlie
0: Dyer's coming up right away with a fresh set of questions about Israel, prophecy, and the Bible itself. Stick around for more on The Land and the Book. ways that you can know that you're growing or trying to stretch and grow in your walk with Jesus is because you've got questions as a result of your time spent in the Word. And the neat thing about this next segment on The Land and the Book is it's an opportunity to address those questions, to get some answers. I'm John Gager, as curious as you are, and I love finding out what people are asking. Charlie, I know you feel the same. Oh, I do, John. You know, Curiosity is uh, the key to Bible study. You ask the questions and then dig in to find the answers. Well, that said, let's get into our first question, this one about the Old Testament. It seems like the towns belonging to the tribe of Benjamin were right next to, or even right on, those that belonged to Judah. Did they overlap?
1: Most people are amazed at how close together things are in Israel. Uh, The boundary between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin actually ran right along the edge of the city of Jerusalem. Joshua 15 says Judah's northern boundary ran along the Hinnom Valley, which is the southern western end of the city. And that corresponds to the southern boundary of the tribe of Benjamin listed in Joshua 18. So technically, Jebus or Jerusalem was in the territory allotted to Benjamin, but they failed to drive the Jebusites out of the city. Uh, We know that from Judges 121. So when David captured it, it became his possession and by extension, then belonged to Judah. But at least in that one particular case, the towns were so close, they did
0: overlap. Cheryl says, thank you for your program. I learned so much about amazing Israel, and I truly enjoy listening. Now, I'm hoping you'll address a concern I have about the Israelites' 400 years of enslavement in Egypt. Why might God have allowed it? When I consider how Joseph was shown his future ruling through dreams— how did he not see there would need to be a record of some sort of his deeds for future pharaohs? Could it have been that he grew apart from God and was therefore no longer sensitive to God's leading?
1: Uh, well, I think there's several clues in the Bible that help answer this. In Genesis 37, we see the sons of Jacob beginning to self-destruct. At First, they plotted to kill Joseph and then finally decided to sell him off as a slave. Uh, then in chapter 38, Judah leaves his brothers and marries the daughter of a Canaanite. You know, from a human perspective, the family was in danger of fracturing and just getting absorbed into the surrounding culture. In fact, I think God interjects that story of Judah right in the middle of the account of Joseph being sold as a slave to show this connection. To preserve the nation, God relocated the family to Egypt until they could become a nation. Uh, We're told Egyptians detested shepherds, so God put Jacob's descendants in a place where they wouldn't be able to intermarry with the surrounding inhabitants and lose their national identity. Now, specifically regarding Joseph, I don't believe Joseph could have done more to help future pharaohs remember what he had done, uh, or I don't believe that he had uh, departed from God or following God later in his life. Uh, God had already told Abraham his descendants would be enslaved and mistreated in a country not their own way back in Genesis 15. When the Bible says there arose a king who knew not Joseph there in Exodus 1-8, it's likely referring to the rise of a new dynasty in Egypt. It's not that the new king didn't know historically who Joseph was, but rather he viewed the Hebrews as a threat. This was all part of God's larger plan for his people. He announced it before it would happen, and then at the right time he raised up leaders to bring the nation
0: out of bondage. Judy wants to know how do the borders of present-day Israel compare to the borders in Numbers chapter 34? Well, the borders of present-day Israel are
1: actually much smaller than those given in Numbers 34. Uh, The borders listed there incorporate much of what's today in Lebanon and Syria before curving back down to the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. The border then goes down the Jordan River and through the Dead Sea, and it doesn't extend all the way down to the Red Sea like Israel's border does today. Instead, it curves around toward the Mediterranean, coming out south of what's today the Gaza Strip. Now, one final detail— The borders in Numbers 34 are repeated again in Ezekiel 47. That passage focuses on events that will be fulfilled during the Millennial Kingdom. In other words, someday Israel will inhabit all the land promised to
0: them by God. Hmm. You're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We're intrigued with your questions, and you can email them anytime at theland.com and the book at moody.edu. Gene says, I love your podcast. Question, why did Jesus refer to himself in the third person?
1: Yeah, that seems strange to us today, but examples of someone referring to themselves in the third person can be found in both the Old and New Testaments. Yeah, in, in the Old Testament, God sometimes refers to himself this way. Uh, one example in Exodus 9.5, uh, it says, The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. Uh, When God announced his covenant with David, most of what he said is in the first person, but in the middle of the announcement, he switched briefly to the third person. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So as you've observed, uh, Jesus does this as well in the New Testament, uh, especially using the title, the son of man. Now, some see that as uh, an attempt by Jesus to hide the fact that he was Messiah, but I'm not sure that explanation is satisfactory. The main expression, son of man, which Jesus uses comes from Daniel chapter seven. Uh, In that prediction, one like a son of man comes in the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days where he's given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Now, by using that title of himself, I believe Jesus was claiming to be both Messiah and divine. Uh, It was the one expression that could combine his deity and his humanity. So I see Jesus using this third person, especially calling himself the son of man, as a self-revealing glimpse into his nature and his role He was the one predicted in Daniel 7 who had access to the very presence of God, and he was Israel's promised Messiah. So in using it, he's really making a strong appeal to those who knew the Old Testament to show them who he
0: really was. Robert says, I've heard that both Eusebius and Papias reported a tradition that the apostle Matthew left the sayings of Jesus in Hebrew or Aramaic but I've never heard that anyone ever found a copy. Were they writing about the Gospel of Matthew? And if so, is there any physical evidence extant that would support that history?
1: Yeah, now that's a straightforward question, though I'm sure some people are listening going, what? Uh, so here's the answer. Eusebius is the ancient church historian. He wrote that Papias had written, Matthew composed a Logia in the Hebrew tongue, and everyone interpreted them as he was able. Now here's the complications. We don't actually have the writings of Papias. We have a secondary citation by Eusebius. And we don't know if the Logia he mentions is actually the Gospel of Matthew or some other earlier collection Matthew might have written. So here's my take on it. Eusebius is a fairly reliable source. And so I assume his quotation was accurate. Papias was an early church leader, a disciple of the apostle John, so he's an early and reliable source as well. Uh, But what we don't know is what that reference is to that logia, as the word is used, described by him. Was it an earlier version of the gospel of Matthew in Hebrew, uh, which some think? Or was it that uh, Matthew wrote a short account of Jesus's words in Hebrew, or more likely Aramaic, to share with Jewish believers shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but then Because it was in Aramaic, it wasn't understood by the church as it grew into the Greek-speaking area. So Matthew then wrote the Gospel of Matthew that we now have. Uh, The problem with that theory, of course, is we've never found any evidence of an earlier Hebrew or Aramaic version. If it did exist, it wasn't the version God chose to include in
0: His Word. And as complex and crazy as it is, I just got to leave it there. Yeah. Richard asks, what Bible dictionary do you recommend? I need to buy one for my personal Bible study. Thank you for your input.
1: Yeah, I have two on my shelf right above my desk. Uh, One is the four-volume International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, and the other is the five-volume Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible. Now, they've been in print for quite a while, but I still find them helpful. Now, the problem with multi-volume sets is they can be fairly expensive. So I have one other suggestion. If you have web access where you do your Bible study, then bookmark this link, www.internationalstandardbible.com. That'll take you to the older 1939 five-volume edition of the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Now, the material is over 80 years old, but it's still an excellent resource tool, and the price that is totally free is unbeatable. Uh, The one area where its age will show is when you want to explore archaeology or more recent geographical discoveries, but the same thing will be true, though, to a lesser extent in any other work in print. So I think you
0: might find that to be an excellent resource. Linney says that last night in a Bible study, two of the ladies said they had read in a commentary that after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews never again worshipped any gods in the high places. I thought that sounded peculiar. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, in general, what they're saying is true. In the post-exilic prophets, you know, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, there's not that condemnation of idolatry that we find earlier. And we don't see it as well in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, who also describe the post-exilic period. But I've got to be careful here. We can't say the Jews never struggled with idolatry again. For example, in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, we know Antiochus tried to force Jews to accept the Greek gods and turned the temple into a place of worshiping Zeus. The Maccabees rebelled against this. They led a revolt that ultimately enabled them to cleanse the temple. That's the origins of Hanukkah. But at least at that time, some Jews had no problem offering sacrifices to pagan gods. But still, I think we can say in general the Jewish people were cured of idolatry following their fall to Babylon and the years that they had spent
0: there in exile. Your question to the land and the book is always welcome. And Charlie's happy to give you a personalized response if you'll email us. The land and the book at moody.edu. That's the land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next, right here. Camping. It's not for everybody. But, you know, for me and my wife, it's a big thing. They say every couple has to have a shared activity. That's it for us. We go camping, not in tents, but uh, in a trailer. Now, Charlie, is there any sense in which camping might somehow connect with your devotional coming up?
1: Uh, It really does, John. We're going to be talking about spending
0: time out in tents, camps, booths, uh, because it's the Feast of Sukkot. All right, maybe not a trailer like I'm used to, but uh, I think this is going to be great. We're looking forward to your devotional, Charlie. First, though, let's pause for this testimony from someone who's been to the Holy Land.
3: Yes, uh, my name is Dr. Michael Chimes. I did go to Israel on two occasions and just really felt like I literally was walking through the Bible. Uh from uh, Capernaum where Jesus uh, spoke in the temple and the ruins of that first temple, uh Sea of Galilee, uh, the Dead Sea. I mean, it is just an awesome experience and I would encourage any believer uh, to uh, make it a priority to visit uh, the Great Land. And um, I will say uh, it was just incredible to visit the various sites, especially in Jerusalem, too, and observe how the coexistence of the people uh, was very impressive to me.
0: All kinds of fancy gizmos for folks who want to enter the world of camping these days. But they didn't have the technology, the tools, or the toys back in the days of Israel, yet they did do a form of camping. Charlie, uh, help us in this third installment of your devotional series.
1: I will, John. This is the final week in this three-week series of devotionals on the Jewish Fall Festivals. And once again, we find ourselves in Jerusalem at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, I titled this series, The Longest Celebration on Record, and I did so rather deliberately. The normal one-day celebration of Rosh Hashanah stretched into two days as the people gathered around Ezra to hear him read from the words of the law. And the seven-day celebration of Sukkot, which usually lasted from the 15th day of the month through the 21st, actually stretched from the second day of the month through the 22nd, three full weeks. Now, to be honest, this included the time of preparation as well as the time of celebration. Here's how Nehemiah describes it. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. It's very likely the passage that caught their attention was in Leviticus 23. There, God commanded Israel to take palm fronds, leafy branches, and poplars to build booths. They were to live in those booths for seven days. For whatever reason, the truth of the passage and the importance of God's command grabbed their attention, and the first scavenger hunt in post-exilic history began. Nehemiah describes the results. The people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. Jerusalem and the surrounding villages were dotted with temporary wooden structures covered with palm fronds and branches. Booths appeared on the tops of their flat-roofed houses. They popped up in the inner courtyards of other houses. Inside Jerusalem, every open space and square seemed to be covered with a patchwork of these temporary wooden structures. Even inside the temple courts, booths were constructed. This was no longer a wearisome command that people ignored or grudgingly followed in a half-hearted way. The people were united with one heart in wanting to demonstrate their love for God and their willing obedience to his word. And then Nehemiah adds a note that helps explain what really made the month of October in 445 BC so special. Listen carefully to what he says. From the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. From the days of Israel's first entry into the land at the time of Joshua until this celebration at the time of Nehemiah, the level of excitement, enthusiasm, and joy over the celebration of Sukkot had never been matched. And that statement covers almost a thousand years of Israel's history. Now, oh, certainly there were more people who celebrated before, and I'm sure there were more booths constructed in the past, and they were likely scattered across more of the land. But Nehemiah's statement isn't focused on the numbers. It's focused on the heart attitude and enthusiasm of those seeking to obey God. As God peered into the hearts of those setting up and celebrating in their booths, he saw a sincerity that was unmatched throughout Israel's history. And that's saying a lot. Each day of the festival, from beginning to end, the people, quote, lived in the booths they'd made, which comes from a Hebrew word that has the idea of sitting, remaining, or abiding. It conjures up the image of the patriarch Abraham sitting at the door of his tent, or the Israelites dwelling in their tents in the wilderness. In fact, this was one of the purposes for the festival of Sukkot. As God said at the end of Leviticus 23, live in booths for seven days. All native born Israelites are to live in booths, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths or tents when I brought them out of Egypt. The remnant in Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah must have resonated with the Israelites who came out of Egypt. God delivered them from slavery in the days of Moses. Now in Nehemiah's day, the people were crying out, but see, we're slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers. They saw the comparison between their lives and the lives of the original nation of Israel to whom God had given his law. It was as if God was giving this remnant in the land a second chance, an opportunity to learn from the lessons of the past and to begin anew to love, serve, and submit to the covenant-keeping God of Israel. As I noted last week, perhaps that's why this time of Sukkot was followed two days later by a solemn gathering of the people where they confessed their sin, as well as the past sin of the entire nation, and made a binding agreement to follow the Lord and obey Him. As we might say today, they now got it. In the celebration of these three fall festivals, they had gained new insight into the holy God of Israel— the purpose for his law, and the impact Israel's past disobedience had brought on the nation. They experienced genuine, heartfelt repentance for past actions and a corresponding feeling of joy in discovering God's love and compassion for them. Pause for a moment and in your mind's eye look around Jerusalem. The walls have been rebuilt, as has the temple. Sacrifices are again being offered on the altar. At first glance, things appear to be back to normal, but look more closely. Most of the houses remain little more than ruined piles of brick, stone, and charred timber. Large swaths of the city are still desolate. So is the glass half full or half empty? The answer is that both are true, but the secret to joy is not focusing on the glass, but on the one who is holding it in his hands. The people in Nehemiah's day understood well the difficult circumstances they were facing. Their land was overgrown with weeds and thorns. Enemies on all sides wanted to harm them. Foreign powers controlled their lives. Heavy taxes threatened to impoverish them. They were not naive about their circumstances. But as they listened to God's word, they realized that the God they served was a God who loved them, who cared for them. Who promised to protect them and who wanted them to trust and obey Him. And by focusing on the one holding out the glass to them rather than on the glass itself, they could find joy in life in spite of their circumstances. So, how about you? What struggles are you facing today? Turn your struggles over to the Lord and choose to follow and obey Him as you trust in Him to meet your needs and solve your problems. John Samus penned the words to a song that I believe matched the response of the people during this long celebration of Israel's fall festivals. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey for
0: there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Thank you Charlie. You know you can hear today's devotional in fact the entire program again at our website thelandandthebook.org thelandandthebook.org. I love your emphasis there on the heart attitude of these people Charlie and boy isn't that the case for all of us in our in our walk with God. I
1: think it is John in fact I think that's what made this such a special time and the reason God said there was never
0: a celebration like that one. Hmm. Well, time goes too quickly, but we thank you for sharing some of your time with us here at The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. On behalf of our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, our executive producer, Dan Anderson. See you back next time for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.